Short Rounds. Hey, y'all. Welcome back to the Unknown Soldiers podcast. I have the honor to be your host, James Hauser, and I hope you have some excellent weekend plans ready to go if COVID isn't stomping on them or anything. Be safe out there, y'all. But if you've been keeping up with the podcast lately, you'll know I'm talking about the Jacobite Wars from 1688 to 1746. The conflicts which saw the exiled Stuart dynasty trying to reclaim the thrones of England, Scotland, and Ireland after they lost them in the Glorious Revolution. Specifically, I'm doing a detailed review of the 45, the last big attempt to reclaim those thrones, led by Prince Charles Edward Stuart, ultimately culminating in the Battle of Culloden. I ended Monday's episode with the two armies on the verge of the battle that would decide the fate of the Stuart dynasty and the future of Britain. Today's short round is a supplemental episode dealing with that story. In particular, the background and makeup of the two armies that would fight at Culloden Moor on April 16, 1746. So obviously this short round will not make a lot of sense if you haven't heard the rest of the Jacobite Wars episodes. So if you haven't, I'd recommend you go listen to them. I think they're pretty awesome. If not, it's time to meet our contenders. So in this corner, you have the British Army of the Hanoverian Dynasty, the Redcoats, 30 years before the American Revolution. In this corner, you have Prince Charles' Jacobite army, the force that will fight to overthrow the new order. As always, this is not just history, but military history. There is some dark and bloody stuff going on. This podcast is PG-13. The language is clean. The content is not. All my sources will be posted on my website, so if you want to fact check me, feel free to do so. Finally, any errors, mispronunciations, or mistakes are my own. I'm trying to be entertaining, but all the information I'm giving you is accurate, to the best of my knowledge. This was a real story with real people and two real armies who don't deserve to be unknown soldiers. So let's do this thing. One of the first things I want to get out of the way. I've often referred to the government army, the Hanoverian army, the army fighting for the United Kingdom, as the British army. But in a way, both armies I'm talking about today were British armies. English, Scots, and Irishmen fought in the ranks of all three forces, and each one was fighting under a British prince for a British cause. I just refer to them as British and Jacobites because that's easier. So first, let's take a look at our reigning champions, the British Army. By 1745, the British Army had assumed the basic characteristics and organization that it would have throughout the American Revolution and the wars with Napoleon. It was a tough professional force, but it was also very small compared to its European counterparts and almost always under strength. On paper, the British Army in 1745 was supposed to number around 59,000 men, but its actual strength was probably in the area of around 30,000 to 35,000. In mid-1745, almost two-thirds of this army was in Europe, and another big chunk was occupying Ireland, which is why there weren't very many troops around when the 45 broke out. The core units of the British Army were the 69 regiments of Redcoat Infantry, which were usually organized into a single battalion. A few regiments, like the Guards and the First Foot, the Royal Scots, had two battalions. In theory, a battalion-slash-regiment was supposed to have 700 men, but in practice, this number was almost never achieved. At the Battle of Culloden, the largest infantry regiment was the 37th foot, with 426 men, while the smallest was the 27th foot, with only 300 men, which is, you know, less than half of establishment strength. If any modern army unit was this shorthanded when it went to war, it would be a national scandal. 
infantry tactics in the Age of Enlightenment were pretty standard across Europe, what historians now call linear warfare. Infantry units would line up three to four ranks deep and march to pretty close range before firing their muzzle-loading muskets in coordinated volleys at the other side. A lot of people in the modern day criticize this tactic without really understanding it. It was just the best way of fighting given the technology of the time. The flintlock musket of the 18th century was only effective at close range. At anything past 100 yards, it was basically an area weapon. The duel between two infantry lines was usually decided by two factors, discipline and volume of fire. Every soldier was drilled over and over and over and over and over again in the basic movements of firing, reloading, and marching so that he could do it in the stress and confusion of battlefield conditions. The best trained infantry of the time, probably the near-robotic Prussian soldiers of Frederick the Great, could fire off four or even five rounds per minute. But the British came pretty close to this number, and three rounds a minute was usually the standard. It was very, very easy to forget a step when in the middle of combat, firing your ninth or 12th round, who remembers, when the smoke and screaming and heat of the day and panic are all around you. Many muskets would misfire, and the soldier, not realizing it, would load a second round on top of the first, or he would leave his ramrod in the barrel and shoot it down range. Granted, whoever that ramrod hit wasn't going to be happy, but now you can't reload. So it was tough to keep your head in this kind of confusing, terrifying situation. That was why discipline and repetitive training were such a big deal in the armies of the age. Discipline was extremely harsh, and punishments included whipping, which if it was severe enough, that could kill somebody. So you got the infantry. So then there were the cavalry. Most of the British cavalry of the 45 campaign consisted of dragoons, which in theory were supposed to be used as mounted infantry. Much like in the American Civil War, the cavalry was supposed to ride to the battlefield, dismount, and fight on foot like a mobile strike force. But in practice, this almost never happened, and the dragoons just fought as regular cavalry. The British cavalry of the 18th century were not the greatest by European standards. French, Austrian, Polish, Russian cavalry were all better. The Duke of Wellington, the British general who defeated Napoleon at Waterloo, was always complaining that the British cavalry galloped at everything, basically yelling Leroy Jenkins before running right into a line of French or Highland infantry and getting slaughtered. See, for instance, General Hawley's cavalry at Falkirk earlier this week. The Royal Artillery was technically not part of the army, but its own separate branch of service under the Ordnance Board. They didn't even wear red coats, but blue ones. This made things nice and confusing for everybody, and the Royal Artillery's disorganization and bureaucratic mess would be a pain in the butt well into the 19th century. Artillerymen weren't even assigned permanent guns. They were just given whatever guns they were going to use right before the campaign began. Basically, here you go guys, I don't know what this is, good luck. During the campaigns of the 45, the artillery on both sides usually had light three-pounder guns that were suited for the unimproved Scottish roads. These were puny guns compared to the big 18 or 24 pounders being used on the continent. But the Royal Artillery's real advantage over the Jacobites was in their trained personnel, with the Jacobites never really had many of. Speaking of personnel, how did you become a redcoat? How did Joe Snuffy of Oxfordshire or Samuel Bruce of Glasgow get into the service? There are some misconceptions about who made up the British Army. 
A lot of movies, novels, etc. would have us think of the British Army as the nation's human garbage dump, where all the criminals, thugs, and psychopaths ended up. A walk-in penitentiary run by a small group of preening, snooty officers. And that just ain't true. Mostly. The British Army of the 18th century was a volunteer force, and your average recruit probably wouldn't look out of place in the modern day, just with camo fatigues instead of a red coat and probably with all his teeth. Their motivations were mostly economic. Bad economic times were good recruiting times. A recruiting party of a sergeant and a few musicians would show up in a factory town or at a country fair, luring young men with promises of steady pay, job security, and plenty of adventure. The the, the recruiting screed hasn't changed much in the last 250 years or so. There were probably your fair number of people running from an arrest warrant, or even a pregnant girlfriend, which to some people I guess is pretty much the same thing. But most joined up because it was a better life than what they had. The army was hard work, but working in the fields or factories or being homeless was harder. The army sucked in the 18th century, but it put food in your belly, clothes on your back, and a roof over your head. There were worse things to be than a red coat in 1745. There is one caveat I have to make. During the emergency of 1745... Parliament did pass some laws telling local authorities to round up all their bums and send them to the front. The local authorities saw this as an opportunity to get rid of all their troublemakers or anyone they didn't like, and many of these vagabonds would be used to beef up the ranks of the regiments that fought at Culloden. Many of the what we would call war crimes that were committed at Culloden were largely the result of these people. Much like the Iraq War surge of 2007, recruiting standards were lowered in times of emergency. Also like the surge, these guys weren't always the best and the brightest, they weren't exactly welcomed by the army, and they were kicked out pretty fast once the emergency was over. A British private's pay was 8 pence per day, a very good paycheck in those times, but he immediately forfeited 25% of that pay to his colonel to pay for his clothing. He would get one full set of clothing per year, a red coat, waistcoat, breeches, hat, stockings, shoes, and a couple of shirts. And when on campaign, he was given rations, and these were also deducted from his pay. These rations usually consisted of a pound of beef, a pound of bread, and bits of oatmeal, butter, cheese, beans, or rice. Not many vegetables. He was expected to provide those himself. That lack of fiber is going to hurt later on. Pretty much all the rest of a soldier's pay went into supporting his family, or more likely, into alcohol. Officers paid their troops daily, in part, to keep them from blowing a month's pay on one weekend of absolute depravity. Colonel James Wolfe took a dim view of drinking. In 1754, he said, It has been observed that some soldiers go out of these barracks with a full resolution to get drunk, and have even the impudence to declare their intentions. Yeah, welcome to the party, pal. Sounds like every army ever. Both officers and religious leaders of the time constantly moaned about the evil influence of drink in the ranks. But hey, the soldiers probably couldn't read and they didn't have any podcasts to listen to. So what else were they going to do? The officer corps was a different story. Despite the stereotype that British officers were all wealthy aristocrats, only a quarter of the army's officers were of noble birth, and most of these were in the guards or elite cavalry units, or arranged so they didn't have to do anything serious. Most officers were the sons of middle-class professionals. Lawyers, merchants, clerks, government officials, you name it. Promotion up to colonel in the British Army was by purchase, so a well-to-do businessman might buy his second son a lieutenant's commission in the infantry to provide for him. 
and this meant that for poorer officers, promotion could be slow. In 1740, it took an average of 19 years for an officer to rise to company command, compared to around 5 to 9 years in the modern U.S. Army. So where did these units come from? Well, as I've mentioned, this was not an English army, but an explicitly British one. At Culloden, four out of Cumberland's 16 battalions, 25%, were Scottish, including the Battalion of Highlanders raised by the Campbells and fighting for King George. Thanks to uneven recruiting practices, there were plenty of Scottish officers and men fighting in supposedly English regiments as well. There were almost as many Scots fighting for King George as fighting for Prince Charles. The cavalry units that performed so poorly at Preston Pants and Falkirk were mostly Irish, and one of the infantry battalions at Culloden was also Irish. The Hanoverian government had created a truly British army that incorporated all three kingdoms. And of course, in addition to the regular units, there were also the Highlanders who fought for the government. As I've mentioned in the main episodes, Duncan Forbes and John Campbell Earl of Loudoun raised their own Highland regiments to fight the Jacobite menace. Highlanders on active service in the British Army included the famous Black Watch, the 43rd, later 42nd foot, and the 64th foot. Again, this whole thing makes it the whole England versus Scotland stereotype of the 45 pretty hard to square with reality. In addition to its organization and firepower, the British Army had one very big advantage over not just the Jacobites, but other European armies of its time. Great, big, stinking, heaping gobs of money. The Glorious Revolution and the New Order had made Britain wealthy, and this economic strength helped make the British Army one of the best supplied and maintained forces in the world. The Royal Navy could supply the British Army anywhere it went, even as far as India or Cuba or Africa. It was a global force with a global reach, and this was almost entirely due to the economic power of the New Order. And now let's meet our challengers, the Jacobite Army on the eve of Culloden. I'm going to spend a little less time on the Jacobite Army than on the British, because, well, they've kind of been the stars of our show so far. I did a short round on the Highlanders already, and we're pretty familiar with the tactic of the Highland Charge. But despite being remembered in pop culture as a Highland army, and I've often, I've often slipped up, I've called them Highlanders when I should call them Jacobites, the Jacobite forces that fought at Culloden were a very different army from the Highland forces that had fought at Prestonpans eight months previously. Between September 1745 and April 1746, Prince Charles's Jacobite army had transformed into a complex force structure that looked a lot like the British army they opposed. Instead of the popular image of a horde of barely armed Highland rabble, they had regular infantry, artillery, cavalry, a staff, and even some regular soldiers. But the army still looked, and fought, like a Scottish army. The majority of the recruits the Jacobites gathered after Preston Pans had been lowlanders, since many clans were so reluctant to come out or siding with the government. Even though Highlanders would eventually be in the minority, the whole army adopted Highland dress as its unofficial uniform, with the plaid and the bonnet and the vest and the stockings, along with the white cockade. Even the English and Irish recruits that the Jacobites eventually picked up would take the tartan as their uniform, so they looked like a Highland army, even though that wasn't quite the case. And almost all units still use the tactic of the Highland charge. The units of the Jacobite army broke down into three major categories. Highland clan regiments, 
lowland volunteer regiments, and French regular army units. The Highland clan regiments we've discussed pretty well already, but even they had changed a lot from the initial days of the uprising. When the clans charged across the field of Preston Pans, the majority of their men had been poorly armed. When the Fiery Cross called out the clans, the wealthier and better prepared men probably had broadswords, targets, muskets, pistols, and dirks all ready to go. But the poorer clansmen were armed with a knife or a lacabre axe, a kind of makeshift polearm. For this reason, the clan officers usually fought in the front line, with the clan chief or his son or brother leading the charge himself. First, as a way of inspiring the rest of their clan with the courage of a Celtic warrior, and second because, well, you put the guys with the best weapons out front. But by Culloden, the capture of British weapons and the arrival of French weapons changed the situation. Almost all the clansmen had a musket by this point. In fact, there were probably more clansmen with muskets than with swords. Even the famous target had been mostly discarded by the time Culloden happened. The clan elite still fought in the front ranks, but behind them marched a surprisingly well-armed clan regiment. The recruitment of lowland units was different from their highland counterparts. While the chief would call out the clan with the fiery cross, the lowlanders were persuaded, quote-unquote persuaded, to join up by the local landowning elite. High-ranking nobles like Lord George Murray, Lord Lewis Gordon, the Duke of Perth, or Lord Ogilvy would pressure their tenants or dependents into joining up. And this was not always voluntary. While it would seem like the British army was the force of oppression and the Jacobite army was the force of freedom, this was not reflected in their recruitment methods. On the battlefield of Culloden, more the British army was there voluntarily than Jacobites were. Even from the very beginning, men from both highlands and lowlands were threatened, coerced, or in some cases literally dragged into the ranks. Now there were undoubtedly many volunteers who believed in the Stuart cause or wanted to fight for their chief, and a lot of people who claimed to have been forced into the service were probably trying to escape punishment after the rebellion failed. The degree to which the Jacobite army was coerced to fight is still highly disputed, but there are just too many stories to be dismissed. One local minister described how Alexander MacDonald of Keppoch, one of the clan chiefs, uh, recruited some men one month before Culloden. They unexpectedly surprised the poor people, snatching some of them out of their beds. Others, who thought their old age would excuse them, were dragged from their plows, while some were taken off the highways. One I did myself see overtaken by speed of foot, and when he declared he would rather die than be carried to the rebellion, was knocked to the ground by the butt of a musket, and carried away, all bleed. The oddest thing about this incident was that these weren't even Kepik's clansmen. He was raising them for a different regiment entirely. By this point in the rebellion, the Jacobites couldn't afford to be picky. These recruitment methods probably also explain the extremely high desertion rate the Jacobite army suffered. George Murray's Athol Brigade suffered disastrous desertion after the lowlands were abandoned in February 1746. Bro, I wouldn't hang around either. There was one unusual source of recruits for the Jacobite army, and that was British prisoners. Many Scottish, Irish, and even some English soldiers captured at Preston Pans or in other battles might switch sides, don a tartan, and join a regiment. They may have numbered as many as a few hundred, and they were not going to have a good time if they were recaptured because swapping sides in wartime is and has always been frowned upon. 
As for the artillery and cavalry, the artillery had an assortment of weapons, including most of Cope's and Hawley's artillery, captured at Preston Pans and Falkirk. But they had to leave most of their heavy guns behind when they abandoned the Siege of Stirling in 1746. Still, the gunners, the volunteer gunners, were getting pretty good under French training. The cavalry was still low in numbers and not quite a professional force, and despite a few hundred horsemen being present throughout the 45, the Jacobite cavalry never played much part in the battles to come. Then there were the French. Starting October 1745, French assistants began arriving for the 45, and this included small numbers of professional French engineers and artillerymen, the areas where the Jacobites were the weakest. Many of these officers were Jacobite exiles themselves, Scottish or Irish men who had taken commissions from the King of France. One of the best was Colonel James Grant, a Scottish artillery officer who commanded Charlie's artillery until the, day, the few days before Culloden. The French units that fought in the 45 were also regiments of Jacobite exiles, often led by some French officers and sergeants. The blue-coated Royal Ecossois was Lord John Drummond's regiment, a supposedly Scottish unit that numbered about 350 men. The red-coated Irish PK were a set of detachments from the Irish Brigade, the Wild Geese, around 300-ish men. These units were professional regiments that could go toe-to-toe with the British infantry in the Continental style. But the Jacobite army was getting better. They were improving. By 1746, the infantry was well-armed, thanks to captured British weapons and French supply runs. Lord George Murray had made it his mission to try and turn the Jacobite army into a professional force, capable of fighting in the European style to a European standard. They were practicing firing drills and maneuvers under the supervision of French officers and sergeants, much like the Americans would do at Valley Forge 30 years later. To use a concept I've mentioned before in a different episode, the Jacobites had the hardware, the military technology and equipment of the era. Murray was trying to get them to download the software, the discipline, training, and tactics, the mindset of Enlightenment-era warfare. This transition was still in progress by the time of Culloden. Charles Murray and the other Jacobite leaders were trying to establish themselves as a valid alternative to the British government. They did as much as they could to institute the same level of organization and professionalism in their army that the British had. They issued general orders, they held reviews, and the staff work was pretty decent. In theory, the Jacobite army was paid regularly, equipped with a Highland uniform, supplied and provisioned, just like the British soldier was, though without the vast financial and economic institutions of the new order supplying them, pay was uneven, and food supplies ran very short. The Jacobites were trying to be the British, but they didn't have the British government backing them up. Building an army from scratch is extremely difficult, even if you know what you're doing. But the Jacobites had done a pretty decent job. If they'd had more time, they might have been able to compete with the other European armies. Unfortunately, time was the one thing not on their side. When these two armies clashed at Culloden, unfortunately for the Jacobites, it would not be a repeat of Killacranky, or Prestonpans, or Falkirk, or even Sheriff Muir. The Highland Charge had been a very effective tactic for a very long time, but that was about to end because of two major technological innovations. The first was the flintlock musket. The flintlock was more reliable and much easier to use than previous individual firearms like the wheel lock or the matchlock, which had been used for the last 200 years. The first decent flintlock weapons came into play by the late 1600s, 
and they were the standard firearm of the 1700s, and they were constantly being improved, and improvements to the flintlock design enabled an increase in the rate of fire. This inevitable technological progress made the Highland Charge less and less effective, since it depended on closing the distance before the enemy could get off more than a single volley. Now, especially on open ground, the British soldier could deliver several volleys per minute. The second innovation was the bayonet. Putting a sword on the gun is a pretty standard idea, but how to do it efficiently was a big problem for arms manufacturers. The first type of bayonet was the plug bayonet, which was inserted into the muzzle of the gun, although you can see the problem here, can't you? You can't shoot with a knife in your gun. At Killacranky, for instance, William of Orange's troops had plug bayonets, but they didn't have the time to insert them after firing before the Highlanders were on top of them they lost the battle. But people had been working on that. One of those people was General Hugh McKay, the defeated commander at Killacranky. These people developed a socket bayonet, which fit around the barrel rather than in it, enabling the weapon to be loaded and fired with the bayonet attached. Just be careful reloading it, because you got a big sword on the end of your gun. This is, the, this is the model of bayonet we can see in our heads. This is the one we see in the American Revolution and the Civil War. It essentially turned every musketman into a spearman as well. So when the Highlanders charged British infantry after the 1720s, they would run into soldiers that had sharp, pointy objects of their own. The only question was whether the British infantry's morale could hold out. We've talked a bit before in this podcast about the difference between cultures and ways of war. I once brought up a concept called heroic courage versus stoic courage. The heroic courage is how knights, vikings, samurai, and highland clansmen had traditionally fought. They valued individual heroism, melee combat, you know, this, the idea of the, he- the gallant hero charging across the battlefield. But the rise of gunpowder weaponry had given rise to stoic courage, a different ideal of what courage was supposed to be. The ability for soldiers to keep their cool in the heat and din of battle was more important than fiery aggression. Staying in line, keeping formation, closing ranks, staying still under fire, tight discipline. Those were the new order of the day. In the Highlanders and the British, we see that contrast between heroic courage and stoic courage. The courage of the Celtic warrior, of the Highland clansman versus the professional soldier. This was a psychological difference between two different ways of war, two different ways of looking at combat. And that psychological difference would tell in the final battle of the 45. Because the question was whether the British discipline, that stoic courage, would hold up to receive the heroic courage of the Highland charge. At Preston Pains and Falkirk, the British infantry had broken. Their stoic courage had failed them. This led some people, like Prince Charles, to believe that the Highland Charge was invincible, that it could not be beaten. To me, that sounds a little bit too much like calling a ship unsinkable. It's tempting fate, because Preston Pains and Falkirk have been flukes, a combination of poor leadership, bad weather, bad tactics, and bad terrain on the British side. And someday, When they got their crap together, things were going to go very badly for the Jacobite cause. And that Sunday was April 16th, 1746, on Culloden Moor. 
Thanks a bunch for listening today, and thanks for coming this far with me. And just as a reminder, remove your ramrod before you fire your long land pattern brown best musket. If you like what you hear, please tell your friends about it. If you don't, tell your enemies. Just make sure you're 100 yards apart. If you want to support in other ways, you can find a donate button on my website at unknownsoldierspodcast.com. You can also find me on Facebook or on Twitter at UNKSoldiersPod, or email me at unknownsoldierspodcast at gmail.com. I always appreciate feedback and commentary, even if it's just kind words. I'm not perfect. If you've got advice, I would love to hear it. And don't forget to see these two armies go head-to-head for the final time. The Jacobite Challenger will face the British Army across Culloden Moor, and the story of the 45 will come to an end. In Episode 14, The Stones of Culloden on Unknown Soldiers. <laughs>